0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Sociologist and Mormon scholar, Armand Moss, says that as a relatively new religious movement, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has followed a developmental trajectory similar to many other such movements. In the next few years, as the church enters its third century, it's likely to face many new and unprecedented challenges. And Armand Moss will consider how the church and its members might cope with these challenges, including the definition of gender in church life and navigating issues of faith versus doubt, in a lecture coming up this afternoon. It's titled Mormonism's Third Century, Coping with the Contingencies. It's sponsored by USU's Religious Studies Program, and it's this afternoon at 4 o'clock in Old Main, Room 121 on the Utah State University campus. Armand Moss began his postdoctoral career at USU as a sociology professor and professor is a a Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Religious Studies at Washington State University. He's a former editor of the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion, served for more than 30 years on the editorial board and board of directors of Dialogue, Journal of Mormon Thought, and he has served as president of the Mormon History Association. His books include All Abraham's Children, an analysis of Mormonism's evolving and conflicted perspectives on race and lineages, his most recent book, "Shifting Borders and a Tattered Passport: Intellectual Journeys of a Mormon Academic," offers a look at Mormonism issues navigated by those who study it. And Armand Moss, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate you uh, being with us. I'd like to uh, maybe take you time, uh, take you back to your time at uh, Cal Berkeley. You, you recount this uh, in your in your latest book, um, and uh, a, a young man studying sociology and religion. At that point, it was the prevailing views, I understand it, was that secularism would overtake religion.
1: Yes, that was the conventional wisdom that we were all taught, even in graduate school.
0: And uh, so I guess you and some of the other young scholars pushed back on that a bit. You, you saw these new religious movements.
1: Well, uh, yes. it uh, it was, of course, the time uh, of the uh, Age of Aquarius, uh, <laughs> 1960s and uh, 1970s. I, I left at the end of the 60s. Um, so um, th- the whole idea that secularism was going to take over the world uh, seemed less and less believable as uh, new religious movements developed. The so-called hippie generation of uh, in in part, at least, uh, eventually got off of the the drug culture and decided to try to get high on Jesus instead. And as a result, a number of new movements developed, um, not only Christian, uh, but also uh, Hindu and and uh, others. <clears throat> and um, this wasn't supposed to happen in an age where secularism was taking over. So. Um, uh, I, among others, uh, became interested in uh, how we would explain this apparent anomaly, um, and um, uh, ever since then, it's become quite a contentious question uh, about whether um, th- the way of the future really is secularism or if uh, new religions will eventually take over. Um, a lot of Depends on where the scholar is sitting, as it were. Um, A number of uh, uh, my colleagues, including uh, Rodney Stark at that time, um, were working on an idea that uh, a number of us came to subscribe to, uh, which was that secularism is a a self-limiting process because there's a a natural human inclination to search for meaning. What's it all about? Uh, Why am I here? All of this. Well, secularism doesn't really have many answers to that. And so secularism, looks good for a while because it seems to answer the immediate questions of contemporary existence and uh, uh, promotes uh, science and all other, all kinds of other good things. But it doesn't have a whole lot to say about meaning. As time goes on, um, uh, people uh, search for meaning in uh, other ways than secular and of course the major religions are all about searching for and understanding meaning. But as the old classical religions themselves become secularized, which has happened worldwide, then that uh, kind of opens a space where new religions can come in with new definitions of meaning and, and promote those. So the more secular the environment becomes, the more is a market created for new religions with their new explanations for meaning and so that's that's what we see and mm-hmm. uh, and, and of course mormonism itself began in an environment like that where right. already 200 years ago the secularization process had begun with the older established religions, and the young upstarts like Methodists, and then a little later Mormons uh, came in with new definitions of, of uh, meaning. Hmm. That's probably more than you wanted to know. I'm Th- no,
0: that's good, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Uh, so let's make the transition then to Mormonism. That uh, and, and I was as you were speaking, I was just thinking the you United know, States such a fascinating place. You know, fascinating history anyway, but it's the birthplace of. Several fairly new and substantial religious movements, including Mormonism, right. Uh, so, y- the theory that you've developed is this, this theory of assimilation and retrenchment. This, this, this kind of yeah. this, this. I wonder if you talk a bit about that, which which Mormonism has followed. You say. Yeah.
1: Well, the, um, the, the 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 classical uh, theory about this was actually developed uh, uh, about a hundred years ago, or a little more. Um, by um, a couple of German scholars, uh, Max Weber and Strelz, and their theory has come to be known as the sect to church theory. And according to that theory, the fate of every new religious movement is to begin with a lot of charismatic enthusiasm with a new understanding and definition of meaning. A kind of a new product in market sense. And then with a and because of that devotion and and sacrifice and investment of members uh, in this new movement, it becomes really very successful. It grows and attracts a lot of people from elsewhere in the religious market. And uh, because of that devotion and the self-discipline that often comes with it, these new movements tend to become successful not only in, in a movement sense that they grow and develop, but the people tend to become successful uh, in a worldly sense. Well, as soon as that worldly success sets in and increased income, uh, education, and all of that begins to occur in the second, third, and fourth generations of these new movements, why then they begin also to enter – a process of secularization. Um, an, an alternative way of speaking of that secularization would be assimilation. That is, uh, uh, t- typically, the brand new sects are not well assimilated. They're, they tend to be kind of radical in their surrounding environment and they make a lot of people mad and they subject themselves thereby to a lot of persecution. Well, in order to get away from that disrepute and persecution, uh, they gradually begin to tone it, down, tone down their message and so they become more acceptable and more assimilable to the surrounding society in, in which they grow. And the ultimate um, end of that process is just secularization again already, which is what has happened to all of the major religious denominations that are familiar to us on the scene today. Uh, I discovered that in the Mormon case, the process has been taking a little longer because the Mormons almost uniquely, not totally uniquely, but uh, almost uniquely, uh, the Mormons have... um, at certain points along that assimilation process, have deliberately decided to uh, uh, retrench, to move back a little bit. It's as though the church leaders have decided that this assimilation has gone far enough. We're starting to look too much like other religions, and so we're losing our kind of peculiar uh, claims, and so we've got to go back to the way it was more in the old days. Now, I don't think for a minute the church leaders sat down and talked about this, this uh, strain between ass- assimilation and retrenchment, but there was a kind of a recognition that that occurred. One of the most dramatic uh, t- at, uh, times that it occurred, actually, was in early Utah's history during the period called the Mormon Reformation. Uh, when there was a period of about five years altogether when um, when Brigham Young uh, appointed his uh, his chief lieutenant for these purposes, Jedediah Grant, to go out and uh, really crack down on the slippage that had created and been created in the in the Mormon way. And um, the effects of that uh, retrenchment went on to include, toward the end of Brigham Young's life, uh, an effort to resurrect the United Order. Uh, and all of these proved to be fairly temporary. And so at the end of the nineteenth century, after um, the the ultimate uh, um, gesture toward assimilation, namely the manifesto about polygamy, after that occurred, uh, then uh, the the Mormon movement, Uh, went on a very serious uh, path toward assimilation, which lasted until after World War II. And then in a few years in the beginning of the second half of the 20th century, why a rather long process of retrenchment began, which lasted until probably uh, almost President Hinckley's Mm -hmm. administration, Mm -hmm. when we can see signs that— Maybe starting to roll back again toward um, a, a little more assimilation. Mm. Uh, again, I'm sorry to be so long-winded. Old professors are like
0: that. <laughs> right. I want to I want to explore the two extremes of, of that, and, and it it's it's an it's an ongoing oscillation, right? There's no, right. there's no one point where it stops at one one end. But so the danger, I suppose, of going too far afield as a religious movement is um, the 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 greater society stamps you out of existence that's yeah what it, cease to it, be it,
1: if you assimilate too much um, then you become indistinguishable from all the other movements you become you move from the condition or the, that's designated sect or sect like to church and um, the the church is kind of part of the establishment and and is satisfactory doesn't matter which church because none of them challenge the status quo very much mm. Uh, so um, that's fine. So in effect, assimilation is one way of dying out for all mm-hmm. practical purposes. But of course, the opposite way of dying out is to become so radical and to stay so radical that through persecution and other forms of hostility, you basically get stamped out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what um, what my colleague Stark and others finally recommended is that uh, – in order for a movement to survive for a good long time, many generations, it has to find a a point of tension between um, complete assimilation, no serious challenge to the establishment on the one hand, and complete radical um, demands for change of the society on the other hand. And that, that tension with the surrounding culture comes and goes depending on the teachings and activities and behavior of the new movement. and the the trick, though, is to find a point of tension along that continuum, which is in in which the 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 new movement or religion, is different enough to retain its appeal and attractiveness to people who are still looking for meaning, but not so different that it attracts the hostility that will stamp it out. So Mormonism has been trying all this time to continue seeking the optimum tension mm-hmm. with the surrounding American society. Incidentally, I'm only talking about the United States right now. Okay. You go to other countries, why the, the tension continuum would be very different.
0: Mm interesting so uh i i guess uh, at any point along that continuum right and probably different country to country
1: yes it is a different country to country and it's uh, uh it's very difficult uh in europe for example um, to uh, to to see much growth in mormonism because it has never really found uh the right point of tension europe is so totally secularized that uh, almost uh, any uh, truly unusual religious claims are automatically suspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are European countries like uh, Belgium and France, for example, that make up, uh, that have lists of unacceptable religious movements. And Mormonism has been on those lists um, and may still be in, in some countries, and that means that they are denied privileges of all kinds. They can't own buildings. Uh, they, they can't incorporate. There are a lot of things that, that, the, uh, that these different watch lists uh, require, so it makes it very difficult for Mormonism in Europe— Ever to be regarded as anything but just another weird cult like mm. Scientology, or something, and uh, so growth has been been very difficult in Europe. Mm. South America is something else again, though.
0: Right. Yeah, a, a different place on that spectrum. You mentioned uh, earlier that that Mormonism is almost unique in 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 you know trying to. Distance themselves just enough from the from the greater culture. Are are there others that I want to pursue? That almost are there any? Yeah, yeah.
1: I think you could say the the same about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, The um, uh, they too went through a long period in which they were uh, um, really regarded as a, a heretical, radical, and basically a nuisance. Uh, I remember uh, as a Mormon missionary, where I served in various parts of the New England states, <clears throat> that uh, we were always relieved uh, to f- find that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were having such a tough time because they made us look good by comparison. <laughs> they, that One of their techniques was to go up on somebody's front porch and when knock on the door, and when the door opened, they had this portable record player that uh, would play a record uh, about uh, what was wrong with all of the conventional religions of uh, of the world, and and how uh, this and that horrible thing was going to happen if people didn't didn't listen to the to the witnesses' approach. But they've become now kind of much more uh, polite and appealing and friendly. Um, and uh, uh, as a result, there have been uh, moves within the Jehovah's Witnesses movement to get back to a more sect-like beginning and start over again. There's sort of been a certain amount of schism in, the, in that movement over over this process. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things you talk about as well—maybe we treat this a little bit before we go to break—is this back and forth, trying to find just the right amount of tension— going out from the greater society, coming back toward it, uh, I guess if you go too far, if you're not careful, schisms will happen. Oh, yeah. In
1: fact, every time there's a move on that continuum, you, you're likely to get schisms. So as Mormonism moves in a more assimilative direction, it experiences schisms, breakoffs, who want who don't want to go in that direction, who want to go back in the in the more sect-like direction, and then when Mormonism moves back and retrenches a little bit in that direction, then you get breakoffs of the other kind of people that uh, um, that want a, a more uh, respectable, assimilated uh, religion, and that's happened uh, throughout Mormonism.
0: So uh, one, I guess, famous example would be around the time of the manifesto, eighteen ninety. Yeah. L- then you had uh, breakoffs, uh, which included came to include FLDS and others. Right,
1: or go back a little further in the 1950s, and you have uh, um, the uh, Wayward Saints. Ronald Walker's book Wayward Saints. Come on now. <laughs> Sorry, I can't remember their names.
0: But they could serve as an example.
1: Well, speak. yeah, they, 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 they were uh, a lot of them were English saints that had be um, that had uh, been converted and and wanted a little more respectability. I'll think of the name later. I'm sorry.
0: All right, uh, let's let's go to break now. And when we come back, uh, I want to take this foundation we've laid—the the, uh-huh. the theory and the, this uh, back and forth, this oscillation that happens in all religions, including Mormonism—and I think you're going to use that and. Uh, Maybe try to predict, or at least point out some areas mm-hmm. that Mormonism will have to address mm-hmm. in going into its third century. That'll right. be the that, uh, major part of your talk. We'll treat that uh, in uh, the second half of this conversation. We're talking with uh, Armand Moss, uh, who is a sociologist, a Mormon scholar. He uh, says that as a relatively new religious movement, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has followed a devel- developmental trajectory sim- similar to uh, many other such movements. And in the next few years, the church uh, enters its third century. It's likely to face many new and unprecedented challenges. Uh, He will consider in a lecture this afternoon how the church and its members might cope with these challenges, including definition of gender in church life and navigating issues of faith versus doubt. That lecture is sponsored by USU's Religious Studies program, and it's uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock in Old Main 121 on the USU campus. We'll have more following this break. (laughs)
2: It's the fourth largest lake of its kind in the world, but the Great Salt Lake is often underappreciated in Utah. With the lake level within a foot or two of its record low, now is a good time to get to know the Great Salt Lake. Over seven million migratory birds stop at the lake each year, stocking up for their epic journeys across continents. Between the people who come to appreciate the birds and a handful of specialized industries, the lake brings in over a billion dollars for the state each year. I'm Jennifer Pemberton. This week on The Source, we'll hear from researchers and resource managers as well as residents and visitors to the Great Salt Lake. We'll learn how close we are to actually losing the lake forever and about some of the threats that are challenging it well beyond its usual ups and downs. That's this Friday at 9 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio.
3: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, and offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Spencer Tegen, 435-753-7880.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is sociologist and Mormon scholar Armand Moss. And uh, he uh, says that as a relatively new religious movement, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has followed a trajectory similar to many other such movements and uses that as foundation to look forward. In the next few years, he says, as the church enters its third century, it is likely to face many new and unprecedented challenges. And in a lecture this afternoon on the USU campus, he considers how the church and its members might cope with these challenges, including the definition of gender in church life and navigating issues of faith versus doubt. That lecture is 4 o'clock this afternoon. It's sponsored by the USU's Religious Studies Program. It's in Old Main 121 on the Utah State University campus, free and open to the public. So Arbon Voss, we we uh, looked it up uh, during during the break, (laughs) and uh, you were talking about the Godbeites.
1: Yeah, it's it's the Godbeites movement that I was trying to think of that was the uh, um, kind of uh, uh, an assimilationist um, schism that developed in Brigham Young's time, partly in response to the Reformation. But it was a little later than that, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, was, was uh, reacting just in general to the, the efforts to, uh, uh, that Brigham Young was making to keep Mormonism as, as different as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, do you use the same framework then to uh, put into context conflicts which develop between members of the church
3: mm-hmm. and the
0: church hierarchy? Then it, maybe the church hierarchy wants to go a little closer to society, a little further away. Church member, some church members may disagree with that, either on one side or the other. Is that?
1: Oh sure. Well, it, it all it, it ultimately boils down to um, what the members are going to do. Uh, if uh, if there are uh, pretty fundamental and substantial moves in the one direction or the other on the continuum, why um, members are going to uh, vote with their feet, as it were, and just leave. Uh, and uh, certainly that happened uh, during the approximate half century of the retrenchment process that we have recently lived through. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have just left. And uh, it's uh, uh, to some extent, of course, still going on.
0: I wonder, before we uh, look to the future, and uh, the very interesting, uh, you, you have four points you're going to treat in this, this lecture, challenges that Mormonism faces. Are there? You've talked about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, some other movements that have tried to maintain attention with the greater society. Are there other newer religious movements or older religious movements that have just run into the arms of society and uh, don't worry about attention and uh, and don't follow this pattern, or at least have reached the end of it?
1: Well, I I guess there are. I I can't say that any come to mind. The thing is that that if there are new movements that move quickly into assimilation, why they don't last very long with a separate identity uh, or they become sort of interesting footnotes uh, in history uh, as, if you know if they don't really represent a challenge to uh, certain fundamentals that a, that a culture values highly, uh, then they're not going to be noticed particularly. Hmm.
0: What do you see uh, the, the so-called Mormon moment? You know, maybe ongoing. There's and maybe we're moving uh, mm-hmm. out of it. Um, it, it. Would this be part of assimilation or, or retrenchment? Do you think?
1: Well, it's a mixed blessing. Um, I think um, the, the the Mormon moment, which uh, may or may not still be going on, um, it th- the good news was that it brought a lot of. Um, information about Mormons and Mormonism to public attention, but of course that was the bad news too mm-hmm. uh, because um, the uh, rich Mormon heritage with all of its weirdness was also made very apparent. Uh, in some ways the the Romney campaigns were a mixed blessing for the same reason. Uh, Romney was a wonderful Example, indeed, a poster boy for uh, what a good Mormon uh, would look like. Um, Some people found him just a little too good to be true for that reason. And um, the the more we learned about Romney and his uh, uh, church leadership. That was criticized by some who had known him. Or the more, indeed, we learned about his underwear, um, why uh, the more weird Mormonism seemed to some people. So um, the Romney candidacy was a kind of a uh, uh, of a of a particular uh, instance in the in the Mormon moment that uh, helped precipitate feeling. I think of either the one kind or the other. Um, it's not clear, though, that after all was said and done, there are that many more people in America that know about Mormonism any better than they did before Romney. Uh, in some ways, the the church campaign against gay marriage uh, represented through Prop 8 in California would be uh, 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 a better example of, of what uh, came to the fore in the public consciousness, and has really lingered longer than the Romney campaign yeah. has.
0: It's a good place for us to segue into uh, some of the points you're going to make in your lecture, and uh, very religious, very very interesting. Um, looking forward to to, mm-hmm. to to the challenges that Mormonism faces in its third century. Um, so issues of gender mm-hmm. and and the church. Uh, wh- what do you think the tension is going to be? What wh- how will the church have to resolve that?
1: Well, I think it's clear already that uh, that the church leaders are um, looking for ways to modify the classical church uh, definition of of gender roles in such a way as to um, make greater visibility and authority for women uh, a legitimate part of um, of the. Uh, uh, acceptable gender roles for women. The the question of um, giving women the priesthood is, of course, the most contentious uh, of all of this, and. Uh, from a, a sociologist's point of view, leaving aside any kind of supernatural influence here, but from a sociologist's point of view, uh, the movements movements like the ordained women movement, um, while they have um, uh, seemed to to alienate um, the church leaders and the most strident feminists uh, from each other. Have had the effect of making more moderate feminists uh, seem uh, much more acceptable. they they well, they seem more moderate <laughs> mm-hmm. by comparison with with the women in the ordained movement. So I don't know if that's any comfort to the women in the ordain or to the feminists, I should say, in the ordained women movement, but one one thing they've accomplished, if nothing else, is to make their more moderate um, uh, sisters. And and feminist colleagues uh, seem seem moderate, and so we have as a result uh, a number of new developments in in the church that that uh, uh, many many have noticed so far. To the most strident feminists, these modifications seem kind of cosmetic, uh, but they're in they're in the right direction. Um, so uh, um, I don't know if. Uh, any of my listeners will live to see um, women ordained uh, to the priesthood in the church uh, but i don't see why it couldn't happen uh, and why it couldn't happen in the 3rd century as far as i know there is not a doctrinal reason for uh, denying ordination to women there may be a lot of other reasons but uh, and and especially cultural or even Uh, organizational reasons, but I don't know of any doctrinal reason.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with Armand Moss. He's a renowned sociologist, Mormon scholar. Uh, His books include All Abraham's Children, an analysis of Mormonism's evolving and conflicted perspectives on race and lineages. His most recent book is Shifting Borders and a Tattered Passport, Intellectual Journeys of a Mormon Academic. It offers a look at Mormonism and the issues navigated by those who study it. Uh, He is in Logan for a lecture uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, Old Main 121. On the USU campus, sponsored by USU's Religious Studies Program, it's titled Mormonism's Third Century Coping with Contingencies. We're talking about some of these points, looking ahead uh, to to Mormonism's future. If you'd like to join this conversation, we'd love for you to do that. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can uh, join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so one of the things I think you're going to talk about um, is correlation, and mm-hmm. uh, if you're a member of the church, you'll know that word. If you're not, you probably that's kind of insider. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain what that means and what, how how you see that as being a challenge in the future.
1: Well, correlation is a is not only a a concept and an, and an organizational uh, uh, strategy, but it's a movement actually. Within Mormonism, a movement among uh, Mormon leaders and uh, uh, and um, and a certain segment of the Mormon population to um, make the um, operation of the church more highly centralized and hierarchical, uh, so that uh, uh, in in as far as possible, um, all of the uh, uh, Decisions made about uh, the church manuals and and lesson manuals, I mean, particularly and church teaching, uh, ultimately is done by a small uh, committee called a Correlation Committee. All that that committee does, of course, ultimately is approved by the general authorities. But it's a committee that attempts to make sure, in a in a highly hierarchical and centralized way, that everything taught in all of the different departments of the church and classes of the church uh, are consistent with each other. That uh, and, and one of the uh, effects of that, of course, is that uh, it's almost literally the case that uh, whatever lesson you get in Sunday school on a given Sunday in Utah uh, you will get exactly the same lesson anywhere else in the world uh, on that same Sunday. Now, there's little variations in that for you know local reasons, but that's that's kind of the ideal. Um, the One of the things that uh, sociologists are always interested in when when we see these uh, kind of large-scale changes taking place in any organization, is the unintended consequences. Um, and, of course, the unintended consequences are a, a kind of, of fate of all human efforts. You know, who among us has not faced unintended consequences for decisions we made that we thought were gonna be just fine? Or, or even um, family policies. As, you know as a as a parent myself um, i I can well remember having a, a, instituting a number of family policies my my wife and I were very faithful about family home evenings for our children all for twenty years all the time they were growing up and we had a lot of children um, and I can remember any number of cases where we would institute a family policy and discuss it of course with the kids and win them over and get a family policy, only to find out that uh, there were unintended consequences that we wish hadn't occurred. Well, th- that's the same with correlation. It's had a lot of unintended consequences, and during the coming century of the church, I think these are going to have to be dealt with. And One of them is, in fact, um, a reduction in the power and visibility of women. Uh, that was not an intentional purpose. Of establishing correlation but it has been a kind of inevitable consequence you know one wonders why it wasn't anticipated a little better Uh, it it may well have been anticipated but not regarded as particularly important but now and increasingly so the uh, uh, lost uh, power and visibility of women because of correlation has uh, become a problem that that has to be dealt with by some of these changes that we just mentioned. Uh, Even if they're cosmetic, uh, they seem necessary. Um, uh, Today's church members, I'm sure, for the most part, do not recall that there was a time when women and uh, uh, the women appointed by church leaders— who had the primary organization and the Relief Society organization and the Young Women's MIA organization, all good sisters appointed by the presiding brethren and uh, f- forming presidencies of their own uh, had uh, virtually full control over what was what manuals were written and what was taught in those classes, uh, the Relief Society uh, had a, a magnificent uh, social welfare program that was uh, responsible for um, uh, instituting uh, many uh, professional uh, practices of the of the social welfare profession, uh, and um, and the uh, Great uh, Relief Society magazine that was a successor to um, X, the Exponent magazine, all these were you know, in the hands of, of women. But in correlation, everything is put under the control of the correlation committee, which in turn is under control of a, a certain committee of apostles. And so um, n- none of the women's organizations can do anything that is not approved mm by that that committee.
0: Interesting. So,
1: you know, that's uh, and that's one of the things that some modern women are kind of upset about, when, especially when they when they read history.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to uh, read this uh, statement uh, from a blog post that, that you wrote in uh, 2010. Let's look into the future of Mormonism. It fits in our discussion here. Uh, interested in me. I'll have you expand on this. You say, for better or for worse... The church can never substantially separate itself from its American origins and geopolitical location.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. And you know, ask any of even the most devout Mormons in other countries; <laughs> they'll tell you that. Um,
0: um, are, are there particular problems then that are you know the church is going to have to face in its third century, based on the you know American centric? At least view of the church.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, just things like uh, Pioneer Day celebrations um, that are uh, that are promoted um, by um, American missionaries and mission presidents in in other countries, um, and uh, uh, even the the hymns. A lot of the hymns that we sing uh, I, I'll never forget years ago I I visited LDS congregation in Alberta Canada um, and uh, uh, one of the it, it was around the 4th of July and there were so many Americans or in in that congregation who were American residents of Alberta um, that uh, one of the hymns we sang was uh, um, what the British call God Save the King. Right, God Amer- saved, America the Beautiful. Mar- Mar- we do, we well, not it. America the Beautiful, okay. uh, but, uh, but uh, just America.
0: Oh, America, that's and right. My yeah. country tis of thee. Right, right.
1: And s- s- ironically, singing it to the British... <laughs> Tune, God Save the Queen, <laughs> right? And um, and, and there was about a there was certain amount of grumbling about that mm. afterward, but uh, <laughs> uh, and that's sort of an extreme example. Um, but um, there are just things like the the American way of doing things that mm-hmm. that that are difficult. One of the one of the favorite hymns that uh, I I always enjoyed growing up um, was. Uh, the one that contains uh, uh, the the phrase, uh, "O Babylon, O Babylon, we bid thee farewell. We're going to the mountains of Ephraim to dwell," something that would make no sense in Europe, or uh, just about anywhere else. And I'm not sure it makes any sense to contemporary Latter-day Saints in Utah, for that matter. But it once represent represented a deeply felt key idea of Mormonism, mm-hmm. that that these mountains around here were sacred, uh, and that uh, they were a refuge for people who had fled the world. Um, Mormons don't think like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in Europe, they don't understand why we sing songs like that. Mm. Um, n- n- another kind of flagrant example is that um, our Hundreds of thousands of converts in Africa don't understand the um, hostility of Mormon leaders to the use of drums in in our meetings. Drums are their major musical instrument. So when we started doing missionary work, why well, the church exported to Africa a whole bunch of of um, um, Kawasaki pianos. Uh, for, so that the African sisters could learn to play the piano. Well, playing the piano is okay, but they really miss those drums. Um, and it's not clear why there can't be provision made for that. There are just all kinds of anomalies around the church in other, other countries that, that are owing to the fact that the church has a, a, a still a totally American and Americanized uh, church headquarters.
0: We'll just have a few minutes left with uh, Armand Moss, so just a couple of minutes. Uh, I want to turn to—I uh, think this is going to be the, the major portion of your talk this afternoon. But which, by the way, is four o'clock, Old Main 121 on the USU campus, sponsored by USU's Religious Studies Program, and that's this uh, tension between uh, faith and doubt. This would play out among members of the church and hierarchy, and uh, um, so I want to turn uh, just briefly to your book, a "Shifting Borders and a Tattered Passport." Um, so I wonder if you could briefly explain that, that phrase, shifting borders, and then, then, then there's a passage from the conclusion of the book that I want to have you treat okay, a well, couple minutes here.
1: The shifting borders I'm talking about are the, 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 the shifting back and forth between retrenchment and assimilation. Um, I, um, I grew up in a highly assimilated church, and I got very used to that, and I really liked it. And uh, then, as a young adult, I found myself in an increasingly retrenched church and retrenched religion. Well, that made my kind of Mormonism and my kind of study of Mormonism um, increasingly suspect. Um, I really did encounter priesthood leaders, uh, local and general. That were unhappy with things that I wrote uh and some of the things that i I said publicly um, and uh I hadn't really moved in in a uh, in an ideological sense because I still thought of myself as a devout latter day saint, still held temple recommends and all of that but uh uh found myself uh, in a in a place that was uh, uh, not so comfortable anymore what had shifted was the boundary um, and the boundary as the as the boundary narrowed with retrenchment I was left outside and so I had to uh, keep checking in <laughs> as it were uh, almost almost as though I was visiting a foreign country um, and I've I use that kind of symbolism at the beginning of the book to explain mm-hmm. what that shifting border means. And,
0: so that would uh, talk about the tattered passport as well, I guess. Yeah, that, and the yeah. tattered
1: passport yeah. is uh, mm-hmm. is sort of a, a consequence of that. Uh, yeah. Keep going back and forth and getting the passport ac- acknowledged and accepted uh, by Different sides, because I, what I was doing that was objectionable to some of the more retrenched thinking Latter-day Saints was just exactly what I should be doing for others, and particularly in my academic profession.
0: So, finally, just about a minute left. I was I was interested in this phrase, this sentence from from the the end of your book. You say your disenchantment inoculated you from disillusionment.
1: Yeah. by, by disenchantment, um, I, I mean um, um, giving up the idea that everything that happens is by divine will or that, that uh, everything in the church is divinely inspired. Uh, I, increasingly I came to understand uh, uh, Mormonism as a religion that however much the divine hand was involved in the beginning of the religion, that from from that beginning it became increasingly a human organization. Or as a Mormon might put it, that God delivered the, the message and the restoration into the hands of human beings whom he designated to carry off the the the, 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 um, the church. And so in carrying off the church, God's human agents acted pretty much like other human beings. And as I came to understand that, then that I was disenchanted, disenthralled, as it were. Um, but understanding that also meant that I couldn't really very readily be disillusioned by learning something that these human beings did that I objected to. as I'd say, well, what you know, what do you expect? This is what human beings do. I think they're doing wrong, and I, I'm not going to go along with this, and I'm not going to go along with that necessarily. Uh, but I'm not going to leave the church over it, and I'm not going to kick over the whole religion. Uh, so I'm not disillusioned because um, I have no illusions.
0: Mm. Got you. Uh, I want to get this email in at the very end here. This is Julie, who emails us. Uh, She says, First of all, I want to say that I'm finding today's program informative and altogether thoughtful, an example of the kind of nuanced programming Access Utah presents. However, I would like to offer one observation. Even a moderate feminist like me questions the cliched coupling of the word strident with feminist, why not oppose the cultural connotations of the object adjective with a term less fraught with negative associations? Uncompromising comes to mind as one possibly. Uh, that being said, I want to express gratitude for the interesting discussion uh, going on. Uh,
1: I I thought I was making a distinction between strident feminists and other kinds of feminists. Uh, you know, I think it's it's fair to regard uh, the. Uh, the followers of Kate Kelly uh, as strident, uh, maybe the the followers of Nylan McBain, as uh, more moderate. Mm. I don't, I don't necessarily uh, attach to the word strident, um, any opprobrium. I don't see anything wrong with being strident, and you know, If you, you know, if you've got the feeling that requires you to be strident, but it it, it is a different kind of of. Uh, of strategy, a different kind of campaign, and a different kind of mentality as one approaches the church hierarchy, whether or not one is feeling strident or, or moderate.
0: We're out of time. We'll leave it there. Uh, thanks for the email, Julie. Appreciate that. And uh, our thanks to Armand Moss, sociologist and Mormon scholar who is in town to uh, give a lecture sponsored by USU's Religious Studies program. That's this afternoon at 4 in Old Main 121 on the Utah State University campus. It's free and open uh, to the public. Armand Moss, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Commentator Thadbach.
2: We live in a desert, one of the driest and most rapidly growing states in the United States. Political pressure increases to move water from less densely populated areas to those that are rapidly growing. One Utah project would store water in the Bear River and seven reservoirs in and around our Cache Valley, then pipe that water to the Wasatch Front. The legislature just put $5 million seed money into a water infrastructure fund that will pair the Bear River Pipeline with one to take Lake Powell water to Utah's Dixie. But the legislature did nothing to balance water supply with the growing population growth, nor did they fund research to improve water efficiency. Our state has Utah State University and the University of Utah with over a century of research on all phases of water use. World-class experts from economics to physical scientists are ready to work on every stage of water use if the legislature would fund them. Utah is number one in water use, We use a whopping 248 gallons per person per day. Governor Herbert challenged Utahns to reduce use by 25 percent. Well, we can do that, but if we do, we will still be about twice as much per capita as Vermont's 97 gallons per day. By adequately funding research, Utah could well lead the world in water use efficiency. But instead, the legislature chose to store and pipe water to the rapidly growing areas and let them grow. Folklorist Austin Fife told a story about a prolonged drought in Utah where people asked their religious leader, a crusty old rancher, to hold a prayer meeting for rain. He reluctantly agreed to do so, saying, Don't expect too much out of the Lord, because by nature this is damn dry country. Let us remind our elected officials that we live in a desert, and remember that the next time we vote. This is Thad box.
4: Thank you for listening to Access Utah here on Utah Public Radio. And uh, a great program today, and some of the interviews that you've been hearing and you appreciate having, we'll call, make a financial contribution to your public radio station. We're making this available to you. And we do it with your help. 1-800-826-1495. That's 1-800-826-1495. Or you can also go online to upr.org. Thank you to the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art here at Utah State University. They've been sending employees uh, over to help answer the phones, and we'd love to have them be busy, stay busy, one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five 826 1495 or upr.org. I'm joined by Shalane Smith-Needham, producer for Access Utah.
3: Hi, Brian. It's great to be here with you, and As a former producer of the program, I know how time-intensive it is to produce Access Utah. I'm just taking a look at some of the topics that have been covered recently. Of course, today we had Mormon scholar Armand Moss
2: from Public Radio International.
3: we had Armand Moss on Mormon scholar. Uh, We had a program on my a book entitled My Journey up Kilimanjaro at 300 pounds. That was an interesting program. Uh we had one recently on The Science of Smart uh it's from American Public Media. It uh was an interview on uh <clears throat> excuse me with Utah Senator Howard Stevenson on the language immersion initiative. Uh, it was a very interesting program. Another one on a book, uh, The Brain That Changes Itself, by Dr. Norman Doidge, a woman uh, who had, who has half a brain, and she was able to rewire itself to work as a whole. We also had a program, I love this one, really related to this one, How to Speak Cat and Dog, A Guide to Decoding Cat Language. I have two cats, so I really appreciated that program. Uh, Faith in Science, Human-Wildlife Conflict. Uh, we From NPR done-
2: News in Washington, I-
4: Sorry, Shalane, i That's gotta okay. got to turn this board off. It's... No,
3: you're fine. But as you can tell, we've had a variety of issues and topics covered on Access Utah, from legislative programming to a, a concert here in our own studio, an evening of Brazil featuring Bossa Nova and Samba music with Mike Christiansen, Eric Nelson, Linda Linford, Christopher Nail. So just a variety of, of topics that are covered on Access Utah, and this takes time It takes a lot of money to produce Access Utah, time to brainstorm topics and uh, research the topics, find the guests, get everything scheduled, and then the initial research for the program. 1-800-826-1495.
4: Thank you for joining us for Access Utah. I hope a couple of of you will either go online or give us a call, support this program today if you haven't already done so. We're looking for our first two calls in the program, 1-800-826-1495, or you can go online to upr.org.